0: That's heritageradionetwork.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Essex Market. Essex Market is New York City's most historic public market, proudly located on Manhattan's Lower East Side. Find the freshest produce, meat, fish, and specialty foods from over 30 unique vendors. Learn more about the market's family of small neighborhood businesses at essexmarket.nyc. This week on Meet and 3, we're looking at things that have changed and things that are still in flux. From mothers balancing new lifestyles to the social stigma surrounding pumpkin spice. You got rid of the star rating system and talked about, like, I'm not going to use the word ethnic when I talk about food.
2: They recognized that safety was our motivation, and, and they were very you know receptive to the changes understanding what we were trying
1: to accomplish. A cupcake or a piece of bacon or a glass of rosé is not inherently gendered. Tune in to Meet N3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: Hello, welcome to Japanese. I'm your host, Akiko tema a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deeper understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashiwame ni zakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is so mystery for many people, and I will try to demystify it in this program with my cookies. guests. And my guest today is Joshua Walker, who is the president and the CEO of Japan Society in New York. Joshua has a very intriguing background. He was raised in Japan and spent his formative years uh, in Hokkaido, the northern Japan, uh, northern island of Japan, where the um, geographically and chron- geography and climate are very different from the mainland Japan. And Hokkaido, is uh, the food culture is extraordinary. And... Since Joshua left Japan, he has been working in global affairs and known as a perpetual bridge builder, citizen diplomat, and trained academic with a specialization in the Middle East and East Asia. So today we'll discuss Joshua's unique childhood in Japan, how it influenced his mindset as a global leader now, the fascinating food culture in Hokkaido, what you should eat there, and much, much more. But before we start, Japan needs is available on Heritage Video Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify and subscribe to Japanese. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Also, I have a quick announcement today. So there is an exciting online event coming up on Saturday, November 21st and Sunday, the 22nd, uh, which is called Sake Future Summit 2020. This event will help you discover the exciting flavors and profiles of sake and shochu that are transforming the world leading bars and restaurants. Also, the event will feature various discussions among the sake and shochu experts about the challenges the industry is currently facing and innovation to conquer them, as well as sustainability and other significant matters for the future of sake and shochu. The summit is hosted by Sake On Air, the fabulous podcast that is specialized in sake and shochu in cooperation with the Japan sake and shochu makers association and admission is free for more information go to sakeonair.com slash summit again sakeonair.com slash summit now let's start a conversation with joshua walker hello joshua welcome to the show
2: hey how are you i feel great to be here
3: yeah so this is exciting um, so, uh, I heard that you grew up in Japan and uh, came to the U.S. when you were 18. So what was your childhood like?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, right? I think that it's always very strange when you hear somebody like me that sounds like such an American. And if you could see me right now at 6'3 and blue eyes, I don't fit the kind of typical idea of a, of a kid growing up in Japan, particularly in my home island of Hokkaido that you described is very uh, unique. There aren't that many people that look like me in Hokkaido, and most of the ones that look like me are probably Russians, uh, sailor men who are there, or maybe Australians or people from New Zealand who are skiing we're snowboarding there. So I had a very unique uh, background in childhood. My parents are missionaries. And so they, they went to Japan when I was one. And then we moved to Hokkaido uh, when I was two. Uh, and I live there in Sapporo, the the, the uh, capital of Hokkaido, in a fairly large city, the fifth largest in Japan, uh, from that age until 18. And so really, my Japan is Hokkaido. And I feel very lucky because uh, it's kind of like telling uh, somebody, oh, I'm from Montana, I'm from Alaska. It's kind of the last frontier of Japan, has a very unique and different culture, not just because of the Japanese that live there that kind of want to have more uh, space and nature, because it represents 25% of the landmass, but only 5% of the population, but there's also a pretty strong indigenous culture uh, represented by the Ainu, who are the indigenous people there. So, um, you know, to me, that is just, I was very, very lucky growing up. Uh, I didn't have the guardrails of a kind of gaijin or kind of American uh, culture there. I had to really be one with the the, the Japanese and Hokkaido culture. So I've always embraced that. And I really thank uh, my parents for taking me there. Uh, And and it's one of the reasons I speak Japanese and and, am so in love with Japan.
3: Mm. So did you go to local school?
2: So I went to a uh, Japanese kindergarten. I went to a yōchen uh, at, at, at the church that my parents were working at. And then in elementary school, I switched over to Hokkaido International School. So it's not an American school. Uh, it's an international school, meaning that, you know, we have close to 40 nationalities represented. Most of my teachers, you know, were from en- English-speaking uh Places, meaning like Canada, Australia, Britain, and even America, but Americans were not the majority. But I always went to uh, Japanese schools in different ways. So in elementary school, during the summertime, I would go to Japanese schools. Uh, and then as I got older, uh, I would play basketball in the junior high and high school uh, leagues during the summertime. And I also did uh, Aikido at martial arts uh, at the local gym as well. So I was fairly involved. And then also my church was all Japanese. So I had a fairly active uh, kind of childhood growing up uh, with Japanese uh, kids.
3: Wow, that sounds like a perfect um, cultural bilingual. And it's like 50-50%. That's yeah. amazing.
2: I mean, what's funny is I'm actually very amazed that I still speak English because like, honestly, like I spoke English at home, uh, but my internal external environment was in Japanese. And I remember very distinctively when I was in Yochen and maybe even older, I would come home and listen to my parents. And I would like, why are we speaking in English? Let's speak in Japanese. (laughs) And my parents didn't know the type of Japanese I was speaking. Because as you know, there's different levels of Japanese. And I'm really, really bad at Teinego, which is kind of like very proper Japanese. My father, who's a pastor, can speak beautiful Teine Japanese, but his Japanese kind of sounds feminine, because part of the culture of having a really highbrow Japanese is speaking almost feminine, whereas the way I speak is very much like Rambo Japanese, very like street Japanese. And so you know, <laughs> I still, when I speak Japanese, including with the prime minister or others in Japan, I'm embarrassed because I sound like a third grader or something. So it's a, it, it is definitely a split personality in many ways.
3: I have to find out someday how you speak in (laughs) Japanese. And I also heard that you have a black belt in Aikido and uh, you once competed in an international snowboard competition in Sapporo. Wow.
2: You, you, you're throwing out all my secrets here, Aikido. This is going to make me look way cooler with people than I actually am. Uh, these are the, <laughs> the hidden secrets that I try to hide from people because, you know, getting a getting a black belt in Aikido is actually not all that hard when you when you're practicing all the time at your local gym. It's not as you know intense as in America. We have to go to dojo every single week. I You know, I practice it for many years, and yes, that that is something I trained for. And then I have to just say the international snowboarding competition uh, is a little bit of a misnomer. You know, when I was growing up, this is back in the 19. 19- eighties and nineties in Japan, snowboarding was not a big deal. It was just not a big, big, uh, it was just not as big of a, as it is today. And the X games, uh, which had come to Sapporo for the first times were kind of desperate to find anybody who would, uh, you know, compete in these things. And so it wasn't like I had a sponsor. Uh, you know, I basically, it sounds cooler to say you competed in it than actually doing it. So I don't want to make your, I don't want to mislead your, your, uh, your listeners to think that I'm much cooler than I am. But yes, indeed, both of those two statements are factually correct and I use them all the time to make people think I'm cooler than I am. But I have to confess to you that that, that I'm not as cool as th- that appears to make me look.
3: <laughs> Maybe you don't know how cool you are yourself. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, that's—I mean—as you probably talk about—and uh, you know—we talked about this uh, when we had a chance to talk on on tea time for Japan Society. Part of Japanese uh, omotenashi culture, part of uh, hospitality, is to always kind of put yourself down a little bit to honor somebody else. You never talk about your own strengths; you always talk about someone else's. And so, uh, maybe that is part of uh, my mindset uh, in terms of not really wanting to glorify those aspects. But uh, I am typically American in the sense that I, I do like to make sure that people know of where I am strong. And also, where Japan has an incredible uh, contribution to the world. And certainly, uh, you know, you and the work you're doing with your show is important because I do believe that, that one of the superpowers of Japan is its food and its food culture.
3: Mm, right. So, uh, well, now that you mention it, so Joshua uh, has an interesting program uh, called Tea Time with Joshua Walker, and uh, it's on YouTube. And uh, you have many interesting guests. And luckily, I was involved, included in one of those people. So so if you're interested, it's on YouTube video and Joshua Boka, the Titan time with Joshua Woka. That's a plug. Thank and you. I, uh, you're good
2: at this. You're much better at promoting it than I am. So, yes, we, we would love to have you there. We had uh, uh, Soichi Noguchi, uh, who is the astronaut who just launched into space. He launched our first uh, episode, and you are our very second one. So you're, you're equally as cool as an astronaut, Akiko.
3: <laughs> Thank you. I'm so honored. Yeah. And also, the other thing, you, you know, your snow kind of career in sapporo so the hokkaido is really famous for the snow the quality of snow and some skiers told me that that's the best in the world Mm -hmm. so you are lucky to be able to you know snowboard in this oh absolutely
2: I mean, I'm really spoiled, right? Because, and we'll talk about this with food too, but in terms of snow, I didn't realize that snow came in any other variety except for Hokkaido snow. There's there's kind of, you know, people always talk about how, oh, it must've been so cold. Actually, it wasn't that cold because to get good quality snow, it can't be too cold because if it's below a certain temperature, then the snow freezes. And if it's above a certain temperature, you don't get snow. And so, you know, the the, the closest uh, analogy I can have to the snow that I used to take for granted in my hometown uh, is actually in uh, Vail, Colorado or Aspen, Colorado. Those are the only two places on Earth um, that I've actually been where I've actually been able to um, have snow that was even close to as powdery and as just amazing and beautiful as the snow that I, I grew up carving uh, in Sapporo as a snowboarder. And again, you know, snowboarders were really looked at in a negative way when I was growing up because you know we kind of destroyed the the nice paths, and anytime we went on moguls, we would kind of do jumps and crazy things. So um, yeah, back in my youth, that was that was the way I used to have a lot of fun. Was really the way you. Make it through a winter in Hokkaido is uh, snowboarding, uh, eating hot ramen, and then also going to the onsens, uh, the bathhouses, and then also going uh, to, to the snow festival, which Sapporo is also very famous for in February.
3: Mm, sounds like heaven.
2: <laughs> Absolutely.
3: <laughs> and uh, so before you became the president and CEO of Japan Site in December last year, you worked in numerous roles and contributed to the global community, I know that. So could you tell us about your career before Japan society?
2: Sure. It's really funny. You know, I think a lot of people, when they look at someone like me, uh, they look at my resume and they say, oh, wow, look at all these places you've gone along the way. It's like a linear path. Well, it might be, but to me, it didn't feel very linear. You know, I I ended up back at Japan Society by way of Turkey of all places. So when I came back to America, when I was 18, um, you know, I went to a university of Richmond in Virginia and really had a great experience, but I wanted more. I wanted to experience more. I'd spent my entire life in Japan, hadn't really traveled much in the region. uh, And I wanted to experience another part of the world. And to me, Turkey seemed like an obvious place as a European American who grew up in Asia, who was trying to figure out my own identity. Turkey as a country has been on that same journey, right? And so Mm -hmm. I ended up getting a Fulbright fellowship, going to Turkey right at this pivotal moment of the uh, 2003 war in Iraq. And so I ended up there as a Fulbright scholar, right as America was going through this very difficult moment in the Middle East. And it turns out that Turkish and Japanese have the same grammar structure. So I'm not particularly good at languages. I just happen to speak Japanese because I grew up there. Uh, And for me, when I would listen to Turkish, it made a lot of logical sense. And after a while, I began to realize, wow, I'm picking this up pretty quickly. just makes sense to me. And none of my American friends or my Arab friends or others or European friends could understand it. But my Japanese, Korean and Finnish friends all said, oh, we understand it too. So it turns out it's part of the Altaic family group. And I was just very lucky uh, to do that. And then I also got really lucky because of my background and my interest. I just don't think you can learn a culture or be really engaged in international relations unless you know the language, because language unlocks so much into the heart of people, just like food does, right? I mean, if you can't fully appreciate, Japanese food or Japanese language. Can you really appreciate Japanese culture? I'm, I, I, I question that. And so a lot of people who do international relations are really great at doing economic modeling and quantitative analysis. But um, the lost art of really spending a lot of time in a country and learning the language, the comparative, uh, deep, uh, you know, kind of psychological and also sociological work is something that I think has been lost. And I just happen to be at the right place at the right time in terms of being in Turkey when a new government was coming to power, uh, the same government. Government that's in power now. I point out twenty years later, by the way, uh, under Type Erdogan. Uh, so it was really an opportunity to learn about Turkey, and people were really, uh, you know, fascinated in my own personal story, and perhaps because I came with a Japanese sensibility. People were willing to give me a chance, and maybe because my parents were Christian missionaries, the more religious uh, Islamic uh, groups that I was dealing with in Turkey also really appreciated getting to know me. So I really fell in love with that country, and uh, I went and got a master's at Yale after that, and then I got a PhD at Princeton after that, and really decided that I loved the research and really enjoyed uh Working on these areas, uh, and ended up going into the State Department for for a stint, uh, and then also ended up uh, in a ApCO Worldwide, which is a strategic communications company, and then I ended up at Eurasia Group, which does geopolitical risk. Before I found my way home to Japan Society. So it's been a quite a quite a li- not non linear path from my point of view.
3: Mm, wow. So, but you don't know how smoothly you tran- <laughs> tra- tran- took the transition through this career because it makes sense to me. And, uh, what <laughs> interesting, I didn't know that the Turkish and Finnish and Japanese are in the same, kind of similar in terms of government structure. Um, and, uh, well, when you were in Turkey, you know, there's, uh, during the, the Iraq uh, war, the Turkey saved over 200 people, um, uh, stranded in Iraq by sending aircrafts mm-hmm. there when the Japanese government was so slow to move. And, uh. You know, like, Turkey and Japan t- happened to be very close because they did that, you know, Iraq, Iran-Iraq war. Um, you know, the, it was very risky for Turkey, but they did it for Japanese people because um, they have a close relationship because um, I think there's some historic events that built the deep and mutual respect and gratitude. The first one was in, uh, I think, 1890, when a large Turkish ship sank near Wakayama mm-hmm. Prefecture, And we're back from Japan and to Turkey. And there's a big typhoon came. So the Mm -hmm. the ship sank. And then Japanese government and many volunteers saved like, I don't know, like 70 people out of 100 people. Mm -hmm. And then carried them back to Turkey. And in addition, they raised the money and sent money to the victim's family in Turkey. And also I think, uh, you know, the Russo-Japanese War, that Japan beat Russia, that was Mm -hmm. when, you know, Russia was threatening Turkey. So it's kind of like it's interesting you happen to be in Turkey because there's a relationship with Japan and Turkey. Yeah, it's crazy.
2: And actually, all the things you're talking about are things that I didn't discover until I started doing my PhD, where I was looking for a comparison between Japan and Turkey. And the reason I did it was here you have the Ottoman Empire and the Japanese Empire that both competed against the West. They challenged the West, but were defeated by the West in different ways, right? World War I in the Ottoman case and World War II in the Japanese case. And both of them became stalwart American allies, whether through the North Atlantic Treaty Organization in Turkey's case or the US-Japan alliance in the Japanese case. But the Deep-seated roots of that history that you just laid out about Japan being the first kind of you know non-Western empire to beat a Western empire—it's something that Turks have looked up to Japan for a long time. And the Ertuğrul, the ship that you're describing that went down, became a major feature film both in Japan and in Turkey as well. And there's a lot of um, connection where a lot of Japanese, uh, you know, really appreciate Turkish food and really appreciate visiting Turkey and the Turkish people and the hospitality. And conversely, a lot of Turkish people love Japan and, and just can't get enough. Enough about Japanese products and uh, the sense that Japan was this modern society that was able to keep its own tradition of being both Japanese, but also modern at the same time without quote unquote selling out to the West. And so I think there's a lot there. And I saw this as well when I was in Kazakhstan, uh, I was running the World Expo, uh, the USA Pavilion for the World Expo. And I felt that Japan had more soft power in Central Asia and the Turkic world than almost anybody else because everyone looked up to Japan in a way that you know people don't feel the same way about Japan. China because China has more of an imperial mentality. So it was, a, it, you know, this history matters. And I think you don't see it all the time, but when you take a step back and when you experience it the way I do, it wasn't a strategic choice that I said, oh, I'm going to study Turkey because it makes sense from a Japanese point of view. I just kind of got lucky and fell in love with it and then began to realize, hey, maybe the reason I can appreciate these things is because of the background I come from Japan. And I think that's what's so unique about Japan. Like, you know, you're able to, to, you're able to take what makes Japan so unique and it makes you exist yourself. It's almost like a mirror that you hold up to yourself. And that's what I appreciate so much about Japan and my work now, because I don't want to be just a, a Japan hand or just a Japan expert. I want to be a global citizen who really appreciates and can help Japan tell its story more effectively, and then find those linkages around the world. And maybe places that seem crazy, like Turkey, that are halfway across the world. But as you just laid out, have these amazing histories uh, there. Mm,
3: right. Well, it is amazing that how um, broad, your views are to, you know, when I look at Turkey and Japan, and they are usually separate being American. But you, in your case, the world is a circle instead of dots. So that's amazing. Yes. Right. And then, um, so what is your personal interest in working in global affairs and how did the 18 years of your life in Japan affect it?
2: yeah i mean i think that when you're when you leave your country when you're one year old and i think that you know there's something about japan that's unique right with a name like mine and looking the way i did i was never going to fit in in japan right i was always going to be a gaijin or an outsider and you have a choice you can either resent it your whole life and say well why don't these japanese you know accept me for who i am or you can embrace it, and so I really embrace my 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 upbringing and saying, look, Japan is my heartland. It's where my parents live. It's it's where my heart uh, continues to reside. I, I think of myself as a dosanko. It's what you call somebody from Hokkaido. I think of myself in those terms. But I know intellectually that I'm an American, and being an American citizen and being a global citizen should not be mutually exclusive. In other words, America is a country of immigrants that was made great uh, by the entire world. You know, America prides itself on being one of the oldest democracies, but we're one of the newest countries in the world. And so there's a lot we can learn from the rest of the world. And coming from Japan, which is one of the oldest civilizations out there, um, it's a real interesting juxtaposition of coming from this island nation, but knowing my heritage is from America uh, and you know just the, the background I bring. And so I think I was kind of born into international affairs. And you know I think that the 18 years that I spent in Japan and have continued to return to Japan has only further enforced my view of the world and helps me see America the way others see us and to think of us as that shining city on a hill that we aren't currently living up to because of the divisions we have right now. But it doesn't mean that we can't be. I think that, you know, we think about the U.S.-Japan relationship. You know, my, my grandfathers both fought in the war against Japan. One was part of the occupation forces of uh, Douglas MacArthur. My maternal grandfather was an Air Force bom- bomber pilot of the B-29. And, you know, they literally fought and killed Japanese. And here my parents were trying to save lives. And here I am as a grandson of them uh, and the son of my parents, you know, leading the Japan Society, whose entire purpose and mission is to bring the U.S. and Japan closer together. And we've been doing that for 113 years. So, you know, to me, it really is a full circle. And to me, they're not mutually exclusive. I think that all that time I spent in Japan has been very well spent, along with the time I spent in Turkey, bringing me back to this moment, this really unique moment in world history where uh, we realize how much closer we are. We all are should be united in this global pandemic, but yet we find that our internal divisions are stronger than we've ever seen. And, you know, it makes me sad to watch what uh, we're going through in America right now, not just a public health response where we have such a crazy rate of uh, infection, but also all the social injustice and everything else that's played out in the presidential election and the politics. Um, There's a lot to learn uh, from both countries. And my goal is to help each country learn and be a better version of themselves as a result of the relationship with each other.
3: Mm, Right, Interesting, right? Because if you are only staying in one country, you don't realize that you are a citizen of somewhere and i i feel like i'm more japanese than when i was in japan it is the same thing that disawareness so that you know that you felt that alignation, but it's kind of boosting your richness as a human being so No, I think that's
2: exactly right. And you know this very well in some ways, right? Because you moved from Japan to New York. And in some ways, your Japanese-ness was never questioned when you're in Japan. But when you're in America trying to explain it to outsiders or to others, you have to be more particular. So when I was in Japan growing up and people would ask me about our history and and ask me what it meant to be an American – things that none of my American friends ever had to worry about, I I was explaining at a young age. And so I have a much clearer sense of consciousness and also a sense of history because of that, because I was questioned at a younger age. And so what what, what nowadays a lot of people are beginning to question, I'm from the southern part of America in Virginia, from Richmond, which was the home of the Confederacy, and there's a lot of painful parts of that past that as a white southern man I need to understand. And I had to uh, undertake much earlier on because it was part of my consciousness in a way that it wasn't for other family members or other friends that I went to university with. And so um, it's something I think all of us struggle with. You know, identity is not a move. It doesn't just stop one day. You're not just wake up one day and say, this is who you are. You're, it's a constant journey that you're evolving on. And I think the richness that we have of interacting with others and understanding that we're more similar than different, even when there's some extreme differences in terms of what we may eat or what we might like, but those extreme differences are on the margin in terms of how important, you know, the togetherness and the unity of humanity is at the Broader scale,
3: mm, right? And uh, so now that you are uh, the president and CEO of Japan Society, uh, maybe you can quickly uh, tell us the history and the mission of Japan Society, and why did you decide to join Japan Society?
2: Yeah, well, you know, I picked a great time to join in terms of literally moving up here just in time for New York to become the epicenter of a global pandemic. But, (laughs) you know, I've always respected the Japan Society. This is an organization that was founded 113 years ago by, you know, kind of American and Japanese business leaders that said, we need to find a way of bringing these two countries together. And it really uh, took on a new life of its own in 1952 after the war, because obviously during the war, uh, Japan Society had to shut down after Pearl Harbor. And it was kind of reopened and refounded by John D. Rockefeller III, on whose uh, home, the Japan House, we currently occupy uh, and have been part of. Uh, and really the mission as we sit across from the UN is really to bring the US and Japan together. And really the main focus during those early years under the Rockefeller uh, presidency was focused on arts and culture. Uh, and really the the beauty of what Japan's history and its past could show towards the future because the the politics was so difficult at the time. And then over time, obviously, Japan's economic rise and success and then uh, thinking about where the U.S. and Japan are now as such close allies. You can't find any countries in the world that are as close as the U.S. and Japan. Even uh, when you look at the U.S. and the United Kingdom or U.S. Israel, there's something unique about these two countries that are from an outside point of view. You couldn't find two countries more different uh, in terms of one being very individualistic, uh, one being consensus driven, a lot of things like like that And so to me, that's the beauty and the fascination, the kind of the yin and the yang of the U.S. and Japan. And to me, that's an amazing challenge and opportunity. I didn't realize I was stepping in during such change uh, that's really challenged the future of not just a Japan society, but our very city and country as we think about how do we adapt to this new world and the digital technologies that we have to embrace as a historic organization. Um, but to me, I joined because I thought it was a part of who I am. I've always been a bridge builder. You described it as a perpetual bridge builder. Uh, that's what Japan society is meant to do, and I think as the youngest president, with somebody who's lived out this experience my entire life, uh, it is incumbent on me to do what I can to give other people the same chances I've had, and to tell the story and to bring that together, which has been the history and the mission of Japan society from the very beginning.
3: Mm, right? I cannot think of anybody really more appropriate than you are to lead the Japan society. So Thank you. yeah, so the, what programs does Japan society offer, and who are the audience?
2: So, you know, we do all sorts of programming, everything from performing arts and visual arts. We have a gallery, and, you know, we've had some of the top uh, Japanese uh, artists, whether it's Aoye Kusama or Yoko Ono, who basically first had their uh, exhibits in New York at Japan Society back in the 1960s. Or, uh, you know, Sugimoto san, the great photographer, also got his kind of start in Japan Society. So we have this long and very proud history uh, there. But we also have new innovations, such as uh, the business and policy program. And uh, we have one of the largest language centers where you can learn Japanese uh, at the Japan Society and we have what's unique about the Language Center is it has offerings all the way from basic Japanese all the way up to to fluent Japanese and Nodokushiken or kind of translating licenses and so it's unique in that sense and you know it really shows you how we prioritize learning Japan through all aspects of it and we also have the largest Japanese language uh, film festival outside of Japan and in North America so we really try to bridge the, the past and traditional side of things and also the contemporary and I think that what we're going through right now in terms of COVID in New York City and also the pandemic globally has really forced us to re-examine our mission and figure out how to accelerate ways we can reach out uh, to more and more um, constituents. And I think traditionally, if I had to be um, you know, brutally honest, I think generally people that have been members of Japan Society are people that know Japan and love Japan. We're kind of preaching to the choir. My mission as the new president is to really expand that, whether it's through our digital programs, but also to invite people that just know they like sushi or people that um, just kind of appreciate certain aspects of Japanese aesthetics. Maybe many people like your listeners who maybe have not heard of Japan Society, I want to reach out and welcome them and say, please join. Please be part of what we're doing. Uh, And people like yourself that are just unbelievable ambassadors for Japan and Japanese culture, Japanese food in your case, uh, to say, how can we work together? I think one of the things we need to do a better job on is not being an island unto ourselves, but being a partnership mentality organization. Yes, we have a long history. Yes, we have a beautiful building. What can we do to make our community strong Longer. Community in the sense of not just the Upper East Side where we're located, but to all uh, boroughs, to all people in New York City, and indeed all the world. New York is a global stage, uh, and if you can make it here, like they say in the song, you can make it anywhere. So I believe that uh, you know Japanese entrepreneurs, Japanese chefs, Japanese uh, people that kind of gravitate towards New York, New York, which is kind of this cultural mecca for many Japanese. Uh, we need to be that fort, first port of entry and a kind of a home away from home for all friends of Japan and all people that just appreciate some aspect of japan
3: Mm, that's exciting and uh, i myself been to many uh, events at japan society and it's really like for example generally it's very intimate and it's something that you don't usually see uh, or some kind of personal taste in it and i enjoy that a lot and i heard that one of those um, sake professionals working in japan had a a good taste of sake at uh, the annual sake tasting event at japan Mm. society and That changed his life. Yeah, it's it's not, uh, you know, kind of like ordinary place. There's something very uh, uh, dense experience waiting for. You
2: know, I appreciate... I appreciate that and I think that you know one of the things we try to pride ourselves on is New York City is a really tough market. You know, if you just do typical Japanese things, you can get that anywhere. There's so many food restaurants as you as you chronicle in your podcast and as you've done in your own books. You know, the the food scene in New York is, is quite extraordinary. But if we can introduce some unique features of sake and help Americans appreciate sake culture uh, as much as they appreciate wine or whiskey. I mean, what's funny is like Japan has never been hotter. It's like anywhere I look everyone's telling me about Japanese whiskey, which I've always enjoyed, and you know, Sapporo beer from my hometown or other things that they love. And now it's Dainiki, it's like the most popular thing you've ever found. So it's kind of like the world has finally discovered our little secret that we've been trying to promote. But now the question is, how can we, as authentic ambassadors of Japan, take them one step further? So, yes, you know Suntory whiskey, okay, you know Sapporo beer, but do you know these other ones? Do you know these other eclectic and very specific regional areas, uh, whether it's from Hokkaido or other parts of, the, of Japan that are not as well known?
3: Mm, wow i'm excited i will really look for uh, new programs um all right so let's take a quick break here and when we come back we'll discuss the fantastic hokkaido food culture so please stay with us
1: Essex Market is a food lover's paradise, with over 30 unique vendors selling everything from one-of-a-kind spices to daily grocery staples, and even scratch-made prepared foods. At HRN we believe that buying from local purveyors is one of the best ways to support an equitable food system. That's why this holiday season we'll be shopping from the vendors at Essex Market. Not only are their offerings fresh and delicious, they're also affordable and sold by a community of passionate small business owners. This connection is what has made Essex Market a stalwart in New York City's food landscape for the last 80 years. Now located in a brand new building, Essex Market continues to be one of the most unique food experiences in New York. At Essex Market, you'll find Lower East Side locals shopping for plantains and avocados, alongside visitors browsing freshly baked bread and locally produced cheeses. If this gets you hungry, order from one of the market's many prepared food vendors, serving up dishes from Peru, Thailand, Morocco, and beyond. Learn more and shop online for local, same, and next-day delivery at essexmarket.nyc.
3: Welcome back, you're listening to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Aki and my guest today is Joshua Walker, who is the president and the CEO of Japan Society in New York. So let's talk about your favorite topic, uh, Hokkaido <laughs> food. <laughs> Absolutely. And Hokkaido is, right? So the Hokkaido is the largest um, and the large northern island of Japan, and it's known for its unique and outstanding food culture. And uh, it accounts for, like you said, 25% of the uh, total land of Japan. So, and a population, like you said, 5% of the whole population. So we have a lot of land. That means we have a lot of uh, agricultural land. So how unique is uh, Hokkaido in terms of uh, the climate and the geographical terrain compared to the mainland of Japan?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's really unique, right? I think people, when they think about Japan, think about Tokyo, and they think about really crowded um, major metropolises. And I think Honshu, the big island, the major island of Japan, is certainly that way, because that's where the majority of the Japanese population is. Just because Hokkaido has a lot less people, and also because it has a lot shorter history in terms of uh, Japanese population moving there, it's much more one with nature. And so it is more analogous to Montana or Alaska, to an American, where you know the rugged beauty, the just the amazing mountains, the lakes, the the culture, and just kind of the frontier attitude of the people from Hokkaido, the Dosanko, is very unique. And I think there's something about the Ainu that even though the population of the Ainu is very, very low, um, it's kind of mixed, right? Uh, Even things like, uh, you know, Sapporo comes from uh, the word meaning vast dry land or all the different um, kind of aspects that when I was growing up, I didn't fully appreciate, but now I really look at even further. Um, You know, there's just something unique there. And the, the way in which the national park system up there in, in, in Hokkaido is the way that there's such a large tourism industry. I mean, most of the tourists that come to Hokkaido when I was growing up were not actually coming uh, from America. Most of the tourists were coming from Taiwan or Korea or the Aussies or the New Zealanders uh, would come up there. The Kiwis would come and visit because of the amazing snow. Now I think Hokkaido and particularly, uh, you know, Niseko and Joe and Sapporo are really well known uh, to kind of a certain echelons of people who are looking for that next adventure. They don't want to go to the Typical places, and you know, I think everybody um, heard about Sapporo from 1972 when the Winter Olympics took place, and this is where the miracle on ice took place between uh, the American hockey team and the Soviet Union. And so there's there's just some amazing aspects of Hokkaido that, because of this frontiersman attitude, um, it just it's unlike any place in the world, not just Japan. And I think every Japanese, generally, when I tell them I'm from Hokkaido, says, "Oh my goodness, that's so amazing! You're from the best place in the world. It's where the people are beautiful, the food is amazing, uh, and we all." went there for a high school trip it's where every japanese kid kind of wants to go for their high school trip and so uh, i feel very lucky to have you know kind of grown up in this kind of dreamland in some ways
3: Mm, right and uh, and i heard that the hokkaido produces 12 percent of the agricultural products of japan despite that cold snowy climate Mm. and uh, it is famous for potatoes corn milk like milk which is you know yes. dairy in Japan. they usually is. So they love milk and beets, wheat, and plenty of seafood such as salmon, scallops, uh, sea urchin, and kombu. And uh, like you know, if you go to sushi place, there are two types of uh, sea urchin. Usually, one from Hokkaido and one from Main. They're completely different uh, mm. uh, species. So Hokkaido is very special. I mean, I really think it's a very sacred place for mm. whoever who loves food. Um, anyway, so most of us don't know that You mentioned a couple of times But there, is a, there are indigenous Japanese people Called the Ainu So in Hokkaido and the, Unfortunately, like you said I heard there are only around 15,000 of them now
0: mm-hmm.
3: But uh, part of Hokkaido's food culture Is inspired by Ainu So maybe you can tell us uh, What kind of food Ainu people used to eat And how it's influencing uh, Hokkaido food culture now
2: yeah i mean you know i think that you're exactly right it's not like there are kind of these like stands that are ainu food that you go and eat it's it is more similar to like native american culture in the us where it's become one and the same in places like oklahoma or texas uh, and other places that have or new mexico that have large populations you know what the ainu did was they lived with nature and so they very much ate uh, you know with with what was there so they ate a lot of the roots that you just described the reason hokkaido is so famous for the radishes and the potatoes and the corn and all these things is because that wasn't some Ways uh, the way that Ainu would harvest them every year. And then, of course, salmon was the main thing. And they would, the thing about the way that Ainu ate salmon, of course, Japanese were eating salmon at the same time Ainu were as well. But the difference was that the Ainu used every single aspect of it. They, they, they utilized everything. They would make clothes and, and shoes from the skin. They would use the bones. They would eat every single aspect of it. And so there's this kind of culture of sustainability that now is very popular in Japan more broadly. That in some ways, the Ainu were much ahead of in terms of that. And also, because uh, of how much more land there was. Uh, And, you know, uh, Hokkaido has many active volcanoes, just like the rest of uh, Japan, but there's more space and there is good, you know, the water is so clear and, and, you know, part of having a good food culture is just having great water and irrigation, whether it's for the rice or whether it's for the the whiskey or the sake or the beer or anything else. And so, um, you know, I think that the Ainu culture has really uh, kind of imparted over generations to uh, the people of Hokkaido that now it's not necessarily an ethnic distinction. It's just that these are the distinctions of people that live on the land and are one with nature in some ways. In the same way we think about that in terms of Native American culture in the United States. And so um, the Ainu are a, a very important and sometimes over uh, overlooked part of Hokkaido's culture uh, that I think I'm really glad to see uh, kind of a rise of interest back in the Ainu, just like you see the rise of indigenous people down in Okinawa as well uh, to people to realize that, hey, Japan may seem like a very homogeneous nation where everybody has brown eyes and Uh, you know, black hair, but actually there are some distinctions. Ainu have much more facial hair and a little bit darker uh, skin and and maybe a little bit uh, different features. In fact, a lot of people trace the Ainu back to the same Native American populations that crossed over the Bering Straits into America. So there's been a lot of work done with Ainu language, Ainu culture, trying to trace them uh, back and and showing that there is this connection between uh, the peoples, which is something that in the past, under one consideration of what ethnic nationality means for Japanese, they would not welcome that. But I think increasingly Japan is becoming more comfortable with its identity and thinking about what it means to be Japanese or Japanese-ness in different ways.
3: Mm, right. And uh, I heard that uh, people are paying more attention to Ainu culture lately because uh, uh, there is a popular comic, a uh, manga called mm-hmm. uh, Golden Curry, which accurately describes uh, Ainu cultures. they say. So Yeah, it's good that really... You know, like you said, Ainu had negative image because of the whole history. But now in that comic book, they are described as very brave and smart and deeply kind of cultured people, which is important. And it's the fact that only, you know, less than 20,000 people existing right now. I think it's very important that we pay attention and support the culture of Ainu.
2: I think that's right. And you know, even when you look at there's a you know, there's a new film, uh Ainu Mosir, which is coming out on Netflix, uh, you know, I think this week. And so even to see that, if you had told me there was gonna be a uh, you know, a kind of a film about Ainu on Netflix, if you had told me that two, two 20 years ago, even two months ago, I would have said that's crazy. I could go, that's never gonna happen. But you see it. It's like it's it's becoming I think because people are in search of their own identity and Hokkaido is such a distinctive and unique place. The people that come from there, there is there's something that's uniquely there. And even if you're not Ainu heritage, meaning ethnically Ainu, you take pride as someone from Hokkaido because they represent you uh, in that way. Just like people from certain states kind of uh, are really proud of the Navajo or the other Native American tribes that you know have this direct connection to the land that we now uh, really feel connected to. And I think that's something that Japanese are very good at in general. They feel very connected to the land and to the sea and to the, the nature that they're a part of in a way that is, is sometimes unique uh, to Japanese. To Japanese. And maybe uh, we sometimes take it for granted living in a place like New York City where we don't really think as much about what's under our feet or what's come before us. We're just focused on what's next and focusing on the future constantly.
3: Mm, right. Well, that's the whole culture of Japanese mindset, right? Like wabi-sabi, mm-hmm. the old thing is good and, uh, you know, nature uh, give gives us everything. We are part of nature. That's kind of a foundational mindset. Even the Japanese yeah. people don't think about it. So, anyway, so uh, what should we eat when we visit Hokkaido? Uh, Can you give us some examples?
2: Yeah. I mean, eat everything is my advice. As you already described, you know, there's just something, you know, in, in all Japanese food, there's always the Hokkaido version of something and it's always better. So whether it's something really simple that Americans can totally appreciate, like, you know, fresh corn or potatoes that are pretty standard, there's something uniquely different and delicious about them. They're sweeter, they're they're more tasty. Uh, you know, everything in Japan is advertised as a Hokkaido potato, just like in America, Idaho potatoes are supposed to be great and corn, etc. But then there's, there, there's more uh, to it. I think, you know, you have to remember, I grew up in Japan uh, when I was a child. And so a lot of my food tastes with Hokkaido is geared towards what a teenage boy would eat. So my favorites would be things like uh, miyoshino, which is basically a very unique uh, Japanese kind of fast food chain that's only in Hokkaido, I think, that takes curry rice and gyoza, so dumplings, and you eat them (laughs) together, which to an American may sound gross, but is just the most delicious thing. Imagine a bed of rice with dumplings and then putting the, the curry sauce on top, kind of more of a stew type of curry as opposed to the Indian variety. I love uh, Miyoshinos. You can get, you know, for 500 yen or $5, you can get, you know, a huge set that will keep you full for an entire, you know, snowboarding session. Uh, Sapporo ramen is by far one of the most famous uh, products uh, in Hokkaido. The noodles are different, the, the the soup, the miso soup, and the corn you put on top, they actually put butter and corn in the miso ramen. That's delicious. Uh, and then, of course, there's things like Jingis Khan, which is basically, uh, the, the legend is that when Jingis Khan, the Mongolian warrior, was trying to Invade Japan, uh, that the his helmet uh, kind of made its way to Hokkaido, and they used it on top of a, a fire, and they would you know kind of heat up the helmet, and they would cook lamb on top of it, and so this kind of lamb uh, kind of festival, it's like all you can eat meat. It's just like a very manly food that you eat. That you can go to the Sapporo beer garden and eat as much as you can. Uh, those are the types of foods that I would recommend eating because that's what I. It's kind of nutskashi. It's what reminds me of Japan. It's my nostalgia, and of course, you know, there's all sorts of delicacies. In the same way that people talk about Maine lobsters, there's kind of Hokkaido crabs, uh, there's all the scallops and the, the the kind of seafood that's just amazing. Because when you're from an island uh, like Hokkaido, like you're very much uh, directly connected to the sea. And so you're going to have the freshest, most delicious sashimi you've ever had, not in Tokyo at the at the sushi market that's so famous, but actually I believe you can get better sushi in Sapporo, particularly in places like Suskino uh, and Tanuki Koji. Suskino is kind of like the downtown uh, you know entertainment district and Tanuki Koji is kind of this main thoroughfare or kind of a shopping street that basically is covered because as you can imagine, it snows a lot in Hokkaido. So between November and April, you have to go either underground or you have to go under uh, kind of covered places because otherwise you get, you know, 15, 20 feet of snow. You can't walk in stores. And so, you know, there, there's kind of this culture of kind of eating while you're out uh, and kind of stopping in and getting things. And then there's also, you know, every what's funny about Hokkaido is even um, the ski resort food places are delicious, right? The, you know, these tiny places that normally in America you get charged, you know, $15 for a burger and a fries that you would never eat, you would never pay for, like at a amusement park. In Japan, things are done right. And so in Hokkaido in particular, even the 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 miso, the miso soup or the 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 coffee or the 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 uh, corn uh, chowder that you can get on the top of these ski resorts is, is some of the most delicious you're going to get so really you can eat you, i mean i endorse everything from hokkaido but i think uh, you can tell there's just there, you don't have many you you can't go wrong in hokkaido when it comes to food
3: mm, right it sounds like everything's from to table okay kind because of <laughs> yes. with access to the best ingredients yeah um yeah it's funny that Genghis Khan, you mentioned that's lamb and lamb is not available in other parts of Japan because mm-hmm. it's they they don't have the land to have it and uh, it's just amazing how different Hokkaido is and there's a lot of there're a lot of reasons to visit Hokkaido um but food is really sounds like very important yes, so absolutely. yeah and then when is the best time to visit Hokkaido so it depends. I mean,
2: you know, I think you don't experience real Hokkaido unless you go in the winter time, obviously. And, you know, the, the, the Yuki Matsuri, the snow festival that's been going on for so many years uh, happens in February at the darkest period of winter. They have a huge celebration for a couple of weeks where the Japanese self-defense forces build these huge snow sculptures for kids, right? They have like Hello Kitty and Pikachu and all these other great things. And then people from around the world come to compete in ice sculpture contest. And so you have these elaborate Japanese. Chinese castles you have these elaborate you know kind of national icons where American and Chinese teams come and build like you know Uncle Sam or you know a Chinese great wall or whatever so it's really it's strangely a very international experience and so I think winter is a great time to go but if you're you know my wife is from Florida she did not particularly appreciate going to Hokkaido in the winter so if you're if you're not a cold uh, cold winter person and don't really appreciate the snowboarding and the skiing uh, the other best time to go is in the spring because uh, just because of the nature just how beautiful beautiful the flowers uh, and just kind of the parks I mean Sapporo is filled with parks and Hokkaido as well has parks all across it so going in the spring when it's not quite as cold uh, and you can actually experience nature and kind of see the flowering and see I mean Hokkaido has very distinctive seasons the four seasons are very clear and people are really celebrating the end of winter it's a really hard winter in in Hokkaido between November and April so when spring comes uh, it it, it, it kind of hope springs eternal in some ways so it's a great time to go and visit and go to so many natural wonders uh, that Hokkaido has to offer.
3: Mm. I've seen a huge uh, lavender field in Hokkaido in the springtime. It was stunning. Um, Yeah, so you joined, like you said you joined the Japan Society without any expectation of challenges due to the pandemic. So um, how are you navigating the current situation? Uh, If you can extend a little more than uh, you mentioned prior and Mm -hmm. conversation and also what are you planning for the future?
2: Yeah. You know, I think that it's a it's a very unique moment. I think the pandemic doesn't necessarily change anyone's life. It doesn't necessarily um, fundamentally reshape everything. Although certainly, you know, if you get sick and, and, and you know, have horrible situations and, and you lose a loved one, that's a different story. But I think it's accelerated changes that were already in our society. And so for me, when I look at just, you know, looking at this, there, there are two ways you can look at it. You can either, you know, in, in the Japanese character or actually the Chinese character for crisis, you can either see danger or opportunity. I'm an eternal optimist. And so I see opportunity. Yes, this is a once in a lifetime, once in a generation, once in a century, century public health crisis we're living with. And we're all stuck at home Mm -hmm. trying to to live this out until the vaccine gets here. But I also think it really makes you focus and prioritize on what matters in life, right? Um, I have two uh, wonderful children who are four and two years old. And uh, this extra time that I'm spending with them uh, has really, uh, really given me a new appreciation on life. And I think even being the leader of Japan society, it's really made me appreciate uh, what Japan is most famous for, which is its resilience, right? Japan has overcome so many challenges throughout its history, whether it's natural disasters like the tsunami and uh, you know, kind of March 11th, that in some ways really helped me crystallize why I loved and cared so much for the Japanese people and and, and my heartland, uh, and wanted and really made me want to reconnect and find a way of being a bridge builder between uh, my homeland uh, of the United States as a citizen and also Japan uh, that I care deeply for. Uh, but also, how can we as Japan society be? A a better citizen, and how can we be a better community organization here in New York? So instead of simply taking our historic legacy and saying, "Well, we were the place that featured all these great artists in the past," we're only going to be for high society. We need to be, you know, kind of part of our community. How can we reach to the kids who are learning Japanese uh, in the Bronx? The, I mean, I've met some amazing kids who are influenced by Japan and Japanese culture, who've watched an anime and said, "That's what I want to do," or people that do these amazing haiku or slam poetry with Japanese. I mean, just some incredible hybrid realities that I've experienced even in my short time uh, at at Japan Society. And I think there's more to it. I just think there's so much that we can learn between the US and Japan. And I believe uh, that Japan Society needs to be at the center of that. We need to be relevant, uh, not just for high society, uh, but for all society and not just for politicians or businessmen, but uh, for people that just happen to appreciate Japanese food culture and people that really look at Japanese minimalism and uh, the Marie Kondo kind of spark joy philosophy, or even people that just appreciate Uniqlo's minimalist design or the Prius from Toyota. There's so many examples of consumer culture that I think has, that has captured the world in some ways that I think we we owe it to our audience and to our community here in New York and beyond to explain the roots of it because it's profound. And there are so many things that I think Japan can teach us in the midst of this pandemic in terms of mindfulness and finding that moment of Zen that Japanese are so famous for, even when it comes to appreciating something as simple as a cup of tea, like we talked about on TV time or a a simple meal that we now don't take for granted anymore, because it used to be we'd eat out every single meal and didn't even think about it now after having been quarantining for as long as we have. All you want is to go to your favorite restaurant, and you're going to appreciate it even more. And so, I think that there's just something about being uh, being thankful. And maybe it's because we're getting close to Thanksgiving, which is one of my favorite holidays. I'm just profoundly uh, grateful for uh, Japan and its place in the world. And yes, there have been problems in the past. I'm not going to sugarcoat the history that led to World War II. But there's so much that Japan has brought to the world, and so much more that Japan can bring to the world as this amazing uh, global hotspot. That I believe that the us and japan can can work together on
3: Mm, right oh you really are the right person to whatever (laughs) make it happen uh whatever you said so yeah well good luck and, thank you. Uh, I will
2: definitely need I'll definitely need people like yourself and your listeners to be a part of it. it's It's fine for someone like me to say, "I want your help and I want to do it." But really, proof is in the pudding in some ways, right? And I think uh, really, what I'm hoping is to kind of work more closely with everyone that has that appreciation and find ways of working more uh, in terms of the food culture and and you know, there's something truly distinctive about Japanese food that's unlike anything else and there are things about the way that Japanese food whether it's a sustainability aspect or the kind of motainai kind of not wasting anything culture that I think that we as Americans need to adapt more of because you know the resources in this world are going to continue to become more and more limited there there's more and more people coming online every uh, every day every year uh, And so I just think that we need to learn from each other. And I think there's so many beautiful things and examples that we can learn, even as simple as as kind of from the food culture side of things that I hope uh, that we can continue uh, to to, to work on together. Uh, And also more broadly from a place like New York that has so much more to offer the world in terms of its global platform.
3: Mm, Well, I can't agree more. So uh, where can we find your updates online and the social media?
2: Well, I think that all the usual places on Twitter and on uh, LinkedIn and all those places, I go by Dr. Jaywalk uh, just because you know when you have a name like Joshua Walker, it's a pretty non-distinctive name. There's a lot of people called Joshua Walker out there. But uh, being uh, b- having a PhD and being Dr. Jaywalk uh, makes it much easier for me to be found. And then, of course, Japan Society is in all the right places online and on social media. We have the digital programs that you uh, kindly joined in terms of tea time, where we talk to influencers in the US-Japan space. We also have things like Ichibei Global uh, talks where we talk about big policy issues like ESG or climate change or space policy and uh, trying to connect people in Japan and America that are on the cutting edge. And then, of course, Japan Society will continue uh, to put out major uh, you know, uh, events as we go along uh, in the arts and culture and the business and policy and the education space. So uh, I hope that uh, you and your listeners will continue to engage with us at whatever level, even if you're a full expert in Japan, then we can go deeper together. If you've never really experienced any of these other aspects that you'll be able to... To, uh, to jump in uh, and kind of we'll give you an entry and introduction to all the best and the abundance of Japan as we engage, explore, and educate about uh, Japan.
3: Hmm. Wonderful. So listeners, uh, let's take a look at what's going to happen at the Japan Society. Uh, so japansociety.org, right? That's the website? That's right.
2: Yes, japansociety.org.
3: Okay. So thank you so much for joining us today, Joshua.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Akio. And thank you for what you're doing uh, with this very important podcast. I look forward to continuing to listen.
3: Thank you so much. So listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics of guests, please contact us at Needs at theheritagevideonetwork.org or akikukatayana.com. Japan Needs is a weekly program and always available at org as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Jess Kramchich, and thank you for listening. I will see you next week. Japan Needs is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization